Welcome into Off the Pike and welcome into the local angle on our FanDuel TV audience. Joining us now, it is Kevin O'Connor. Of course, you know him from the mismatch beyond the arc right here on FanDuel TV. And he has an article up right now on the ringer. The Celtics can't run it back after this. KOC, thanks so much for taking some time, man. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great today, Brian. Thank you for having me on. A crazy, crazy run here for the Celtics. I'm, I'm excited to discuss with you. Yeah, we're still sort of going through the pain of what transpired in Game 7 and now looking into the offseason. So Jalen Brown in that Game 7 has the eight turnovers and just some really bad ones, KOC, that we've seen through the years where at one point he's just literally falling over and loses the ball. There was another one where he's just dribbling to his left, loses it, fast break the other way for a dunk, and it ends up being, what, 68 assists and 66 turnovers in the postseason. And the numbers with him on the court were really bad. Like the offensive rating was a 107.1. Defensive rating was a 114.9. So outscored by 7.8 per 100. And I know it's a small sample size, but with Jalen off the court, the Celtics had a plus 8.4 net rating. And one of the things we've seen with Jalen Brown through the years is he's never really shown up well in the impact metrics, right? Because he's a high turnover player and he doesn't have a lot of assists. He has been a poor three-point shooter despite the really good shooting against Atlanta earlier on in the postseason. His defense, KOC, I would argue over the past couple of years, has sort of slipped a little bit. He's not the same level of defender, and I know he had his moments against Harden, but especially off the ball, and it was very apparent in the finals last year where he just would kind of get lost. And I'm looking at this now where he qualifies for the Supermax, and if you asked me this two months ago, I would have said, yeah, give him that. He continues to get better, but now... I'm just wondering from your perspective, would you be willing to give Jalen Brown the Supermax? Like he's not, in my mind, a top 15 player in the league, even though he made all NBA. I would not give him the money. And I think if they do give him the money, that could go down as a pivotal mistake, a turning point for a franchise, you know, after nine straight years of making the postseason, six straight with Tatum and Brown. If you give Brown, given his limitations as a shot creator, $295 million over five years. I mean, look, I love Jalen. Like, he deserves credit for turning into the player that he has, right? Improving as a shooter, improving as a ball handler. Like, look back at the film of him playing in college at Cal. It was clunky. It was robotic. He couldn't move. He's become a, such a more fluid handler, but I think – there's limitations, you know, there's a ceiling for everybody with certain skills. And with Jalen, I just don't think he's has that feel. I don't think he has the hand size or coordination as a ball handler to ever become somebody who's leading your offense. And time and time again, I, like I was thinking about this, you know, during that game seven against the Heat, there's this clip of Draymond Green talking with JJ Redick. Like he's saying, what lessons did you learn during the finals, right? Like, well, how did you guys adapt? And Draymond's like, well, you know, Boston was going right on drives, and then we said, you know what, let's force these guys left. And then suddenly they start dribbling the ball off their foot and losing <laughs> control. And it's like, okay, that's what happened last year during the finals, and here we are against Miami, and it's a lot of the same stuff with both Brown and Tatum in their respective ways, but especially with Brown. I just think the tough thing here for Boston is, yes, in theory, you should play hardball with Jalen Brown and try to negotiate a lower contract. Yes, that's true in theory, but you've already tried trading him for Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard, and he's already angry about that, and now you're in this position where maybe if you want to trade him, but for who? Like, Damian Lillard might not be available. He's also older. So, like, who? Like, who is the obvious target? Is it going a little younger? 
but does that set you back? There's no clear path forward here for the Celtics, and that's the scary part, you know, when I think about their situation. There's no obvious answer with what to do. Yeah, and I don't think you can, it, when you look at it in terms of the future with Jalen Brown, you can offer him anything less than the Supermax if you want to keep him because of some of the things you mentioned. And also, we know that the Kevin Durant thing really upset, uh, upset him because you go back to the article that Logan had where he said, Logan Murdoch from The Ringer, of course, that he had a three-way call with Brad Stevens and Jason Tatum. And at that point, I can understand where Jalen Brown is coming from, right? Where he says, well, I was probably our best player in the finals. And now, after all this, you want to trade me again? Like, you can understand years ago, the Kawhi, the Paul George, the Jimmy Butler. You can understand it at the time. But now Jalen probably looked at it as like, okay, it's me and Jason Tatum. And we were two wins away from a championship. We want to run this thing back. So... If it comes to that position, I think they're going to have to move on from Jalen Brown in the offseason because if they don't want to give him the Supermax, Jalen sort of has the leverage. He'll say, no, I'm not taking anything less, right? I want the Supermax. If you don't give me the Supermax, I'm just going to go into free agency. Like the Celtics really don't have any leverage in this situation whatsoever. So that brings me to your article. One of the interesting ones you had was the Hornets and maybe something surrounded around LaMelo Ball. And LaMelo had an interesting season because, of course, he was dealing with that fractured ankle, only played in the 36 games. But I was looking at some of the stuff. He was bombing 10.6 threes per game he took, which yeah. Joe Mazzulla would love that. Joe would be <laughs> We're talking about all over it. Uh, Joe's like, OK, yeah, like, trade him now. Actually, trade Tatum and Jalen Brown if he's going to take this many threes. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding there. But the 8.4 assists and look, he's not been in a winning situation in Charlotte, the question I would have for you on that is, A, how does that look with Tatum, the fit with LaMelo Ball? And then secondarily, he's been, I, I don't want to say he's been a bad defensive player, but of course he hasn't had to play high-level defense. How do you think that pairing works? And do you think Tatum would accept that as sort of his second running mate after playing for all these years with Jalen Brown? I mean, I, I Tatum would have no choice but to accept it. I mean, True. this is something you have to do <laughs> as, as a superstar. If the franchise makes a change around you, you get a deal with it. Uh, like Lamelo Ball, I mean, he he's he's such an interesting player. Like that that theoretical idea would really be contingent on the Hornets, you know, with the second pick saying we want Scoot Henderson there. We don't like the right. fit with Lamelo. We want to move on and build a different way. Um, so theoretically, like a guy like Lamelo or Lamelo himself, with him specifically, up until last season, he was really good off ball. He was a smart, savvy cutter, a great off-ball shooter off the catch. He could shoot off a movement. And so I think he would add kind of more of a variety with that offense with Boston with the ability to play off-ball or run the show with high pick and roll as a guy who can attack with secondary actions because I think that's that's the thing. So you think about the Celtics, you think about the Clippers. The Celtics with Tatum and Brown, the Clippers with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, the, the limitations of – having things primarily run through wings who aren't playmakers. And I think both of these teams have fallen short in the postseason for different reasons. I mean, the Celtics went to a finals. The Clippers haven't. The Clippers have mm -hmm. dealt with major injuries to Kawhi. The Celtics haven't had that happen. So it's different reasons. But like fundamentally, that issue with the playmaking is where I think Boston needs to focus on resolving this offseason, whether or not they keep Brown. Like if they keep Brown and Tatum together, they still need to resolve that in the backcourt, which means flipping a Brogdon or flipping a Marcus Smart and shuffling that deck in the backcourt. Because I, I just think there's so many times throughout this postseason and past postseasons with Boston, it's it just seems like they're missing that stabilizer. 
Um, that guy who can just settle the offense, that more traditional style point guard, um, or somebody like, like Dame who can play that role when needed or be the go-to scoring presence, you know, at the highest of levels. Like he can toggle between those two that, that, I mean, do you, do you agree with me there with like, that's kind of the, the missing ingredient, whether or not they keep Brown. I don't know. I'm, that's the way yeah, I kind of to your point, Lillard is basically one of the best pick-and-roll players in the NBA by yeah. the numbers. It would be a perfect fit for him to play with Jason Tatum. I guess my only question would be on the Portland side of things. Do they want to build their team around Jalen Brown, or are they saying, hey, we have the third pick, even if it's Brandon Miller, eventually he's going to be the number one guy, and we pair him with Jalen. And then the other risk they have is, well, what if Jalen just says, I'm not going to sign with you long-term? Mm-hmm. That's a risky proposition when you're giving away Lillard as well. But that type of player does make a lot of sense. That's why... I am fascinated by the Lamelo idea because he profiles as that type of player. And I would agree, Tatum has done a really nice job improving as a playmaker, but he's not naturally that type of player, right? He's more in the mold that you mentioned, Kawhi Leonard, but Kevin Durant, right? Where it's like he's a great scorer. He's not a great passer. Durant's obviously a good passer, but it's not like LeBron James or anything along those lines. So that's why you would like to have that nice, steady point guard. And even a guy like Brogdon, now obviously he was dealing with all those injuries in the postseason, but... He's a driver and a shooter, he, and he's not a good passer. And, and sometimes he has blinders on. He's not a willing passer. White can do a little bit of it, and then Marcus Smart is a passer. He's not really somebody that's going to threaten you as a scorer. So I do feel like that is sort of the missing piece of that team. So I would ask you also, Michael Pina suggested this one, where it's basically you swap out DeJounte Murray, a Kongwu, who we know the Celtics liked going back to that draft, and Sadiq Bey. For Jalen Brown, where you have like a traditional type of playmaker in Murray, you have a shooter in Sadiq Bay, and I know Murray's got an expiring contract coming up, and a Kongwu is almost like Rob Insurance, right? Where, and how many times has Tatum said he likes playing with Robert Williams, like that roller? So that deal kind of got me interested too. Like that actually may be the Murray, even though he's a lesser player than Jalen, it actually may be a better fit on paper. I'm not a Jante Murray fan. Uh, oh, so, you're not a fan. So okay, I, I think he's a losing player, and, and I, I, <laughs> I, I would not, I would not want Dejounte Murray if I was a Celtics, you know, executive. But I could see the logic on paper, especially with Okongwu and the, you know, adding a wing. It, it makes, it makes sense in theory. Like I think, I think that type of deal construct makes sense. Like adding you know, lesser names you know, who, who like kind of add up to be closer to the value of Jalen Brown. I think that makes some sense, but I'm just not a big fan of DeJounte Murray. He's an inefficient scorer. He's a shoddy decision maker. The thing that was so puzzling is when the Spurs had both those guys, Derek White and DeJounte Murray, the people in San Antonio always felt White was the winning player. And yet Murray goes for three first round picks with Atlanta because he's like the 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 more highlight driven player, the higher quote unquote higher upside player. And yet Derek White, he leaves San Antonio. He's the guy who's improved as a three-point shooter, become a more reliant guy off the catch, a knockdown guy off the catch, a guy who's pulling up when defenders go under screens. I think Derek White, granted game seven didn't go awesome for him with Jason Tatum limited, Jalen Brown, you know, fumbling. And Derek White wasn't his best, but I think White can do a little bit more off the dribble. Granted, he's just not a primary guy. I, I mean, I like the idea. I think Boston should consider all these types of scenarios. Like they should consider the parts deals. They should at least pick up the phone and try to back channel and pull Luca out of Dallas. But you're, it's a year away. Oh, now we're <laughs> it's talking. A, it's a year away from from that ever being a thing. But 
you know, like I, like if I'm Boston, I'm making those offers too. I'm like, hey, we'll give you Jalen, Time Lord, and Smart, and all our future picks for Luca. What do you say, Dallas? And they hang up the phone on you. But I'm at least making that call, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm open to all those paths on the Celtics. I just don't think, I just don't think paying Jalen Brown is as going to be of, of great benefit to them, especially under the new collective bargaining agreement and less over this next year. Cause it's one year before those penalties kick in. The penalties don't kick in until 2024. So they have this one year where theoretically they could go all in with Tatum and Brown and try to add other guys, but it's nearing a point that something's going to have to break up. Welcome to the Ringers Philly special. Shield Kapadia here with Raheem Palmer. Sixers got a new head coach, Nick Nurse. Everybody's already planning for the championship next year, Raheem. This is all they needed. They're going. They're finally going to get out of the second round. Now, we're going to talk about it in in an objective, analytical way. The emotion will seep in at some point. But, Raheem, give me your initial thoughts. We talked about the candidates, I think, last time uh, we were on. They end up with Nick Nurse. You get the text. You hear the news. What are you thinking about him as the next Sixers head coach? I have mixed feelings. Um, you know, one thing I will say is I do think Nick Nurse is an upgrade over Doc Rivers. I think he's willing to try different things. We, we've we seen him, you know, throw these junk defenses out, you know, go to a box at one, do things like that. And But we've also seen what he's done, you know, when Kawhi Leonard left the Toronto Raptors. And the Toronto Raptors went 53 and 19 in a regular season. And they took the Boston Celtics to seven games and almost made the Eastern Conference Finals the year after Kawhi Leonard left. So I do think he's an upgrade. However, on the other end, when you watch those Toronto Raptors teams, one of the things that, you know, a lot of Raptors fans have criticized Nurks for doing is overplaying his guys. He's almost like Tom Thibodeau in that. You know, he runs his main guys into the ground and he doesn't play his younger guys enough. And if there's one thing that, you know, Doc Rivers didn't do is that he also didn't develop younger guys. So that's a concern for me. We all know, you know, Joel and B, James Harden, those are guys who have to be load managed and you can't just put everything on them. So if we're not developing younger players, I think we're in trouble. But I think, you know, he'll be able to get a little bit more out of. Joel Embiid, maybe James Harden, Tyrese Maxey than Doc Rivers did. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat. I was like, okay, of the candidates available, I, you know, I thought Doc Rivers, after the way that season ended, it was like something's got to happen. You know, I'm, I'm usually not a something's got to happen kind of guy. I'm like, is it going to be an upgrade or not? But with the way they folded in that game, uh, he had three years. He couldn't get him out of the second round. It was like, okay, move on, try something else. And of the candidates available, I thought Durst was probably near the top of the list at the same time. Am I confident that if they had like Nick Nurse in that series against the Celtics, they're playing in the Eastern Conference Finals or the Finals? No, absolutely not. And we talked about it uh, before. It's a Stars League. And is Nick Nurse going to be able to get more from the Stars than Doc Rivers was able to? I'm not sold on that. Is he going to be able to implement some more creative uh, defensive schemes 
in a one-off playoff situation, I think, yeah, that that is reasonable that he'll be able to do that. So uh, we'll get into a little bit about what he breaks to the table offensively and defensively. But just the way it happened, uh, you know, ESPN had a report that Nick Nurse chose the Sixers over the Suns. Now, since that, uh, our very own Bill Simmons, and there was also a Phoenix uh, media personality out there, were pretty much saying, no, that Suns deal uh, was done. Like, he was not going to get that son's job. And there, there was also the report that he withdrew his name from the Bucks job. Raheem, we're, we're a veteran enough to know that when a coach withdraws his name from a coaching job, it's usually because he's not actually getting that job. So it's not like, you know, I think it was sold. There was some spin out there about what kind of traction he was getting with these other jobs. Ultimately, uh, he lands the Sixers job. And I think the ESPN report said he sold a vision for the Sixers centered on Joel Embiid. Raheem, I mean, is it what is it? What else are you gonna sell? <laughs> what else are you gonna sell the Sixers' vision on other than Joel Embiid, the reigning MVP, and finally getting out of the second round? Like I'm supposed to be impressed with that? Am I, I'm probably reading too much into this, right? See, the emotion is already coming out of me. Yeah, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to please Joel Embiid, and the one thing I will say about that is that I imagine that you know Joel Embiid, he didn't want to see Doc Rivers go. But he knows when he went up into against the Toronto Raptors, those those Raptors teams gave Joel Embiid some problems. So I think, you know, being able to sell a vision based on Joel Embiid, it helps because we all know J- James Harden is a free agent. And with James Harden, if he leaves and he goes back to Houston, this is kind of going to be a gap year for the Philadelphia 76ers. They have no way of replacing his production. So you have to keep Joel and be happy because you don't want him, you know, forcing a trade. So I think, you know, that's a positive in that regard. My car's right out here, Raheem. If James needs a ride, you know, I can, I know, I don't know how to get into the private jet areas, but I imagine with him uh, in the car with me, they'll, they'll let me uh, get there because I, yeah, I, I don't need to see a repeat of, what we just saw there. But with Nick Nurse, what are the Sixers getting? Let's let's get into that, right? Five NBA seasons with the Toronto Raptors. Uh, only got out of the second round once. At the same time, you have to look at the talent he was working with. And uh, I think it's like, you can reasonably argue that three out of those five years were very impressive coaching jobs, right? The one year with Kawhi, they win the title. You mentioned it. The next year without Kawhi, they go 53 and 19. And then just, uh, not this past year, but the year before, they go 48 and 34. Sixers beat them in the first round. But you look at the talent on those teams, and you can easily argue that, man, he got the most out of the talent at his disposal. How do you kind of look at his Raptors run, and do you see it the, the same way I did? I think he got the most out of them in some ways, but the one thing I will say about those Toronto Raptors teams is that they were already ready-made and built already. I mean, Dwayne Casey built the culture of that team. Um, you know, like you already had a guy like Kyle Lowry, who, who's a proven leader. And, you know, since Kyle Lowry left and, you know, they weren't really the same team. They were a team who, you know, like they, they kind of struggle offensively. You know, they had moments where they struggled defensively. So, I mean, the jury is still out on him. I'm going to be honest with you. I just don't know what we're going to get, honestly. And, you know, he's had this reputation of being a defensive-minded coach. But the one thing I will say is that when they initially brought him in, he was the assistant for Dwayne Casey, and he was seen as the offensive-minded head coach, you know, who would, you know, 
have a lot more ball movement because when, you know, DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry were there, it was just, you know, straight ISO. So um, it's tough to know exactly what we're going to get, honestly. I'm I'm still – I I like the hire, but I'm just I'm, – I'm torn on what we're going to get. Raheem, I got to say of like, you know, usually when there's a coaching hire with any of the Philly teams, you start getting on your group threads or people are talking about it uh, around town, your neighbors, whatever. Like there's not that buzzy feeling of like, you know, most people are exactly how you framed it. I like the hire. It's an upgrade over Doc. Is it going to matter? Probably not. And like that, that, that is how I feel. I mean, I don't know if you saw uh, Barkley and Shaq had a, an interesting, I thought, uh, discussion about how much coaching matters after game seven uh, of that Celtics heat series where Shaq was like, dude, I was a star. Like coaching didn't matter. Like either I was going to go in and play well, or I was going to go in and not play well. And Barkley was making the point. The coaching wasn't for you, Shaq. The coaching is for the role players. Like, can you get, you know, a, a C player to play like a B player in a playoff series? You know what I mean? Those, those little victories uh, on the edges, on the margins there. And so I was trying to figure out what do the Sixers need? From Nick Nurse. Like this was the third ranked offense in the NBA last year. Like this, this offense, it sucked. Yeah, it sucked down the stretch against the Celtics. That's a small sample. But if you zoom out, this was a very good offense, the best offense they've had with Joel Embiid. I think we can reasonably expect the defense to be better with Nick Nurse. That that's kind of his area of expertise. But like, what do they need from a coach? They need a coach to be able to get the A plus version of Joel Embiid in the playoffs. And is Nick Nurse going to be that guy like where do you see him uh giving them an edge and is like Joel Embiid for as bad as the playoffs were he just won the MVP like is there more room to grow or where does he give Joel Embiid an edge well here's the thing you know when you watch those Toronto Raptors teams they push the pace in transition the Sixers play slow yeah so it's just like the styles of what Toronto did and what they did well is completely different from what the Sixers are doing well. So it's really tough. I, I just, I like, you're asking a, a head coach who did something completely different to be able to just, you know, make the best out of this situation, which is, is, is just tough for me. So I have confidence that Nurse is going to be able to make some adjustments. That's the one thing that we always saw him do in Toronto. He made adjustments. And that's something that Doc hasn't done. So I think. The big part of it is you got to keep Joel Embiid healthy. I think a big part of his performance in the postseason this year was because he was banged up. He he chased the MVP this year. And then in the first round of the playoffs, he gets hurt. And I don't know if he was ever really the same guy. And, you know, I think part of it is personnel at the at the end of the day. Um, you know, you still have to rely on other guys to be able to hit shots. Like PJ Tucker. You know, as as tough as he is, he's not a guy that you can really rely on to score. And, you know, if you got guys helping on Joel Embiid and just allowing P.J. Tucker to, to shoot corner threes, I, I think it's it, it puts you in a bad spot. So um, we'll see what other moves Daryl Morey makes. But, I mean, I think the jury is still out on this whole situation. Yeah, the management of personalities is going to be interesting because Joel Embiid is on the record that he thought Doc did a good job. And so much of NBA coaching is what is your relationship like with the best one or two players on the team? Nick Nurse in Toronto, 
would ruffle some feathers with some of the role guys. You know, Gary Trent Jr. was saying that sometimes he would hear criticism in the media from Nick Nurse where Nick Nurse hadn't communicated that criticism to him, to his face. Now, take it all with a grain of salt, right? This is the kind of stuff that comes out when a coach uh, gets fired with Kawhi. It was fine. Obviously, that was a great version of Kawhi Leonard that we saw during the championship season. But uh, let's close with this for, for the FanDuel TV segment, and then we'll get to more uh, later here. James Harden, what what does this hire, if anything, tell you about the likelihood or uh, unlikelihood of James Harden returning to the 76ers? I don't think it tells us anything. I mean, okay. it's just a matter of what the Sixers are willing to offer him monetarily. I think that's going to tell us more than anything. Um, so I, I just think the jury is still out. It's just it's still so much that we just don't know. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. I, I agree with you. Yeah, I don't know that it, I'm sure James Harden was obviously on the record. I don't think he wanted Doc coming back. But after that, you know, aside from like Mike D'Antoni, who I'm sure he would have said, all right, maybe that plays a little bit of a role. Uh, I think everyone else probably comes in and he would have said, all right, that's fine or that's not fine or whatever. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean, to me, it just feels like, uh, hey, I'll talk to you next May type of season. You know, I really believe even without James Harden, I think this can still be a very good team. I think we forget that the year before they were 32 and 22 before James, they acquired James Harden. That was with Joel Embiid, Tyrese Maxey, who wasn't as good as he is now, uh, and a bunch of role players. And that's what you're potentially going into next season with. The East, I mean, we're looking at the landscape of the East. It's not a great conference. I mean, you can absolutely compete with the better teams in the NBA. We just saw it. They took Boston to seven games. Boston takes Miami to seven games. Miami is going to the final. So I don't think it's going to be a throwaway year. It's not like don't pay attention. You know, they're going to have a good team in the regular season. But I think the entire fan base has reached the point where we're just like, let's see what happens. We'll be guarded. No one's going to be over the moon that this team's going to the finals until they get past the second round of the playoffs. So uh, remember, you can catch this segment on FanDuel TV and listen to the Ringers Philly special on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with more after the break. This is The Local Angle. Shout out to all our FanDuel TV peeps. My name is Jason Goff right here on the Full Go Podcast. Of course, we got Tony Gill and my main man, Chris Sutton. Uh, you can catch us every Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday right here. So baseball season is always fun because you can drop in, drop out, move around a little bit. You know it's going to be right there for you. It's the soundtrack of your summer and the songs that have been played over the last couple of weeks for both sides of town have been a little bit different, right? The, the White Sox have gotten themselves a renewed energy and renewed spirit, even though they still sit in the shittiest division of all of baseball in fourth place. But Eloy Jimenez has been, been able to hit the ball these last 10 games or so, right? And Liam Hendricks in a, an absolutely outstanding moment. Uh, and shout out to Jason Benetti. You know, I always say that we are blessed with two of the best announcers in all of their sport and Adam Amin and Jason Benetti. Those guys are local guys in this city. And Jason Benetti being the narrator for an extraordinary moment, Liam Hendricks coming back, um, taking the mound for the first time since being di- uh, diagnosed uh, with cancer. And he, he, uh, he got out there. 
and the the angel stayed out of the box for him and you know he got a rousing ovation and you know you could tell he was getting a little bit emotional so there, there was there was a good moment uh in in, in the Sox early goings this season which have been just absolutely uh consistently riddled with bad moments but I got to really get to the point where John Heyman and these trade talks as a Sox fan, I don't know that I've been okay with this kind of conversation this early in the season for a team that I thought was supposed to contend. I don't think I've ever been here before. And I don't think that I've ever been on the the accord with, of, yeah, you can go ahead and send them. I'm sorry, man. Like we we're talking about Mike Clevenger, who since he's gotten here has been uh, a distraction to say the least. Been hurt a little bit, but if he wants to be a back of the rotation guy for somebody, go ahead and pitch your ass off until the trade deadline comes around. Mike Clevenger, you get a guy like Lucas Giolito, who's who's lost some weight, try to get himself back into shape. His ERA is down a, a full run uh, from last year. Seems like he and Ethan Katz have been, you know, figuring out the the minor tinks to his command and, and his um, his delivery that is necessary because Lucas gets out of whack every once in a while. But the, the very, very interesting part of this, I was waiting to see one of these dudes in the lineup name being mentioned in John Heyman's report, but you know, like Eloy Jimenez or, you know, some Yoan Mankata, somebody of that ilk. Dylan Cease's name got thrown out there. And I know Dylan Cease, uh, after having the second most Cy Young votes in the AL last year uh, and, and having an ERA, minuscule ERA, I believe his ERA is somewhere around the fours right now, high fours. That slider and a, a pitch that was damn near unhittable, one of the best pitch pitches in all of baseball, according to fan graphs and baseball lovers alike, that slider just ain't sliding these days. And for whatever reason, Dylan Cease has been getting touched up. So to see his name, especially with two years of control, uh, two years of clubhouse cost control, to see his name bandied about in these reports is a little unsettling, to say the least, because you're still going to have to have something. You're still going to have to have some kind of foundation to sell to White Sox fans to come back to the ballpark if you start to offload some things during this trade deadline. And let's face it, White Sox fans are a hard group to tell to come back to something if you haven't given them proof of concept. I think Dylan Cease would go a long way in giving them proof of concept and just writing this off as a tough season, dead arm, the most innings he's pitched, those kinds of things that you can throw out there as excuses while you try to figure out why your ace isn't playing or pitching like an ace. But other than that, yeah, these bullpen arms, some of these dudes in this lineup, they can go. They can go. This has been one of the more um, underwhelming and disappointing runs for a core of an organization that I can ever remember. You know, we really as Sox fans didn't even get a chance to really get into this. Okay. You got to the ALCS and you lost in six games or you got to the world series and you lost in five games and it was heartbreaking, but it's just a minor tweak here, a minor tweak there. This team has replaced its manager. <laughs> this team has gone out and spent money in free agency. You know, this team over these last two or three years has done a whole bunch of different things. They've just been a whole bunch of the wrong move. And for whatever reason, this this group, this group hasn't been taught the kind of baseball that is necessary to win when your talent isn't playing at its optimal level. And we've all been out there before or played a game with people before where you're like, damn, man, 
Uh, people don't know how cold this person is, but as soon as they start getting after it, they're going to see. That's how we've been talking about the damn White Sox for the last three or four years. Meanwhile, on the north side of town, you got Marcus Stroman out here pitching one-hit complete game gems, and Cubs fans, of course, are very, very upset with David Ross because this team is underwhelming, underperforming. And I'll just say this. You can't press the get people out button in the bullpen right now. I mean, you know, Leiter Jr., Alzala, and 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 sometimes, and not recently, but sometimes, because I still think Michael Fulmer's stuff is decent enough. I just think he's just getting hit. But there's nobody in that bullpen, especially a guy like Kyle Hendricks goes five innings, first five innings start uh, in over a year. He goes five innings in his second start back, and you got to build a bridge to Alzale. You got to build a bridge to Lighter. You got to build a bridge to Merriweather. And they have had issues in that six through eight inning stretch where they're high leverage outs, and you can't get anybody to get consistent enough outs time in and time out. Hayden Wisniewski is going to get some some looks now. I mean, this is a guy who was a starting pitcher with all the stuff that you can ask for a prospect to have. He just got beat up first time around. Goes on the injured list, comes back. I don't expect him to be in high leverage moments and situations. I know David Ross was asked about that. And managing a bullpen when you don't know who's going to get who out is tough as hell. But the real concern that I think Cubs fans should kind of dash away is the offensive one. I know the Cubs fans are upset that the guys aren't coming through with the quote-unquote clutch hit. Hey, y'all, I I looked at the on-base percentage for the Chicago Cubs going into today's game against the Tampa Bay Rays. They were second in the National League. So at some point, there has to be a market correction. Right? At some point, things have to balance out over the course of a 162-game schedule. Now, do I think they're going to be a top-five on-base percentage team? I think at some point they'll start to regress a little bit to the middle, but look at the on-base percentages that you have, especially at the top of the lineup. Nico Horner, before he got hurt, was was looking like an old-school leadoff man, the way he was setting the table. Dansby Swanson, even through his swoon, it's still sitting at a 368 OBP and it's going to play every single day for you because that's what he does. Now, David Ross is going to have to manage that, right? Is, is he better playing 152, 151, 150 games? Or is he an everyday kind of dude like he was for Brian Snicker and the Atlanta Braves back in the day? Ian Happ, 397 on base percentage. Seiya Suzuki, 382 on base percentage. So guys are getting on. Guys are just not... Coming around to score. And at some point, with the variance in small sample sizes, when when that gets thrown out, you're going to see this team score more runs. The problem is this division, right? Like, you shouldn't be where you are in this division right now. The Pittsburgh Pirates are surprising the shit out of everybody. The St. Louis Cardinals are trying to steady that ship. The Milwaukee Brewers and Cincinnati Reds, you know, what are you going to do with that? Like, I understand. I understand the angst by Cubs fans right now, but just hold on. It's going to all come out in the wash. If David Ross is a terrible manager, we're going to find out here soon, right? Because the pieces keep, you know, season after season in his managerial tenure, there's, there's, there's pieces that keep getting added slowly, but surely, you know, say a Suzuki comes in there, uh, you know, a Dansby Swanson comes in there. Now you, you're relying on a dude named Mike Topman, which is hilarious to me these last couple of games, right? But, the pieces are getting more and more valuable. 
Jed Hoyer is only going to do this so long before he's like, hey, uh, the Ricketts family looking at me. So you got to go. It's as simple as that. But hey, man, I don't think that this is on David Ross right now. I think this is on the fact that you've got a small enough sample size offensively that can make you pull your hair out, even though the OBP is where it should be. And you can't get anybody out consistently in the bullpen. I don't think this Cubs team is is a playoff destined squad, but I think that they should be playing some meaningful baseball with a month or so left in the season. And right now, that's what you should be asking for as a Cubs fan. If you think this is a division-winning team and you think David Ross is underwhelming severely, then I disagree with you. I disagree with you. I think I think he's a decent enough manager. I also think that there's a whole bunch of factors right now that no manager would be able to outmanage. You cannot have dudes coming out that bullpen looking you in the eye and saying, I ain't getting nobody out. So kiss somebody else up as well. Marcus Stroman took the ball and did not give it back. You listen, the the most the most um uh raucous section of the entire Wrigley Field crowd was right there down that first baseline in the bullpen because none of them had to get up. It was like, thank you, Marcus. We appreciate you for not letting us pour gasoline on this fucking fire. So, hey, Cubs fans, chill. Just chill. This thing wasn't supposed to be, you know, it wasn't supposed to be destined for greatness this year. Okay? And if you if you want David Ross out of here, it'll happen. <laughs> Trust me, it'll happen because Jed Hoyer ain't about to mess around and give up his position the first time in the big chair after Theo Epstein. This, you got to get this thing going here. He was a part of the dismantling. So now that he's building up these pieces, he's going to have his he's going to have his bus driver in the seat. Now, if that's David Ross, cool. If not, we're going to find out. But worrying about the, the offense is one thing I'm not going to do. And blaming a manager for not getting people people out of the bullpen that they, they, they really can't get anybody out. Uh, that's not something I'm going to do either. South side, north side, we got different, different ways of looking at this thing right now. If you're a fan of the Sox, you understand uh, this thing is over. This thing is over. They fourth in the AL Central. Even if they climb their ass all the way to win the division, the Sox ain't beating nobody in the playoffs with the way they play baseball. Nobody. They still missing cutoff men. They still throwing to the wrong base. They still running in the outs. They have to hit home runs. They have to have that lineup match the baseball because for whatever reason, once one thing is working, the other one is not. And that's how disjointed this team has been over the last season and a half. So I believe you when you tell me who you are. So Cubs fans, chill. Sox fans, Get ready to enjoy all the Justin Fields activity and, and and column inches and content that you possibly can. It's as simple as that. We appreciate y'all for hanging out with us here on FanDuel TV. You can ke- check out the Full Go podcast Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays right here on The Ringer. Welcome back to the local angle right here on FanDuel TV. I'm John Jastrzemski, the host of New York, New York. And I know our friend and our pal Brian Barrett was on earlier lamenting about what transpired in game seven for the Celtics and the Miami Heat. And let me just say, I had really no dog in the fight for the series in general. Yeah, in theory, I'm rooting for Jimmy Butler. 
yeah, Miami is more likable than Boston, but it wasn't really something from a New York perspective with the rooting interest really got in the way. That all changed, and that all went out the window when the Boston Celtics fell behind three games to nil, and all of a sudden the Celtics are storming back, and it's shades of 2004. Oh, here we go again. It's Kevin Millar. It's the bloody sock. It's David Ortiz. It's Johnny Damon against Javier Vasquez in game seven. It was so beautiful for New Yorkers to not have the stomach and not have to digest yet another 3-0 comeback by a Boston sports team. So thank you, Miami Heat, for calming a New Yorker like myself down a little bit. And allowing us now to digest the NBA Finals and allowing us now to get full-fledged right into the heart of the Major League Baseball season. And we are two-plus months into this Major League Baseball season. And did you know the New York Yankees won more games in the month of May than any other American League team? All of a sudden, the Yankees, who did not have the vibes going their way in the month of April, they most certainly have the vibes going going into the month of June after what they did, of course, here in the month of May. And you can pinpoint a couple of different reasons why that ended up being the case. But to me, at least, there's a pretty simple one. And the simple reason for why the New York Yankees have turned their season around and have gotten back on track here in the month of May, they've welcomed back the captain. And they've welcomed back one of the faces of baseball without question in number 99 in Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge missed two and a half weeks. Yet here we are going into the month of June and Aaron Judge is on pace for a similar home run output than what you saw just a season ago. When Aaron Judge broke Roger Maris's record, when Roger Maris said sayonara to the American League record, said sayonara to the New York Yankees record, and a guy by the name of Aaron Judge came in and filled that void. He's at it again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And it's funny to me that there were actually folks out there who suggested in October and November and December of last year that the Yankees shouldn't pony up And that the Yankees should not do whatever it takes to keep Aaron Judge in pinstripes. Imagine being that tone deaf. Imagine being that out to lunch. I don't want to hear about baseball contracts eight, nine, ten years down the road. You are the New York Yankees. You print money. And we are talking about a guy who's going to end up in Monument Park, who ended up the captain of the team. When you walk around New York City, if you're out at Dodger Stadium this weekend, what is going to be the most popular Yankee jersey? It's going to be number 99. And number 99 for the New York Yankees does everything. Hits for power. Gets on base. Knows how to lead. You see his defense earlier this week? Robin Teoscar Hernandez of a home run? He can do that. You need him to play center field. He can go and play center field. And to me, the amazing thing about what Aaron Judge has done over the last two years, he's turned what was 
a perceived weakness about his game. The ability to hit in the clutch. Remember that was the thing? Oh, Aaron Judge, he doesn't hit when it matters most. He doesn't, he doesn't get those big hits and he doesn't get those big home runs. Well, if you look over the last two years, he's done nothing but hit big home runs. Now, I know you judged in Yankee land by World Series. And that is something that the new captain has not achieved. Especially when you consider Derek Jeter won five world championships, went to seven world series and stacked up quite the resume early in his Yankee tenure. Judge has not done that. Been a lot of postseason disappointments, but even with that being a part of the legacy and the resume, Judge is clearly one of the faces of baseball. He's without a doubt one of the best players in the game. And it had me thinking going into this weekend where the stars will be out in full force. Yankees, Dodgers at Chavez Ravine at Dodgers Stadium. That is as cool as it gets. And thankfully, you won't have the Yankees and the Dodgers wearing those dopey Players Tribune uniforms where the Yankees were wearing black jerseys. I couldn't even read Aaron Judge's number when I was at Dodger Stadium back in 2019. At least uh, now you know, okay, it's going to be classic Yankee road grays, Dodger blue, white tops, the way it should be. The way it was in the 1950s when the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Yankees matched up. The way it was in the late 70s and early 80s when the Yankees and the Dodgers played three times in the World Series in 77, in 78, and then, of course, the Dodgers got the better of them in 1981. It's the way it should be. It's been the fantasy World Series that many people have been dreaming for quite a while. When are we going to get Yankees and Dodgers? So as you get an opportunity to watch that display out at Dodger Stadium, I don't know why this dawned on me, but it did. Watching Judge go about his brilliant week, showing up in a monumental way, quite the encore from 2022 into 2023, had me thinking a little bit, okay, as we sit here on June 1st, who are, in my humble opinion, the top five players in all Major League Baseball? And trust me, as I am Mr. New York, New York, I really thought long and hard about trying to put Aaron Judge as the number one player in the sport. Really wanted to do it. I can't do it. Because of the unicorn that is Shohei Otani. It is an unfair advantage. But Shohei Otani is able to do something that nobody else in the sport can even compare to. He pitches at an elite level. He's one of the top pitchers starting-wise in all the sport. And puts up elite offensive numbers to go with that. So when you combine those two elements... You almost have to take Otani and put him by a class in and of itself and then look at the other guys who are playing the sport. But if I'm going around baseball and I could have anybody other than Shohei Otani on my team, it's not close. I'm taking Aaron Judge because of what he provides from a power standpoint, a defensive standpoint, an on-base standpoint, a leadership standpoint. He is the total package as a ball player. And the last two years, from a performance standpoint, that's all you need to see. That's all you need to know. Otani one, Judge two. Who am I putting in that number three spot? 
I might be a prisoner in the moment. I might be a sucker for this guy because he has all of the tools that I'm looking for out of a ball player. And I know last year was a down year. We wouldn't have had him in this conversation June 1st of 2022. But Ronald Acuna is finally playing like one of the top five players in the sport. His speed, his power, his five-tool ability. It is juicy to watch for the Atlanta Braves. And maybe I'm being unfair to certain guys that I'm going to put lower than Ronald Acuna, but I'm drafting a team. I'm going Otani one. I'm going Judge two. I'm going Acuna three. What's not to like about Ronnie's game? The fourth spot for me, and this guy to me is not as good an all-around player as the other three guys I just mentioned, but you could make the argument. He's the best pure hitter that baseball has going. And that would be your Don Alvarez of the Houston Astros. He's got the sweetest swing, in my opinion, in Major League Baseball. It is short, sweet, to the point, but yet ferocious at the same time. Look at what your Don Alvarez did last year in carrying the Houston Astros in the Division Series and in the World Series to their second championship. He's not going to wow you from a five-tool perspective. He's not going to wow you the way Acuna can. He's not going to wow you the way Judge can, because Judge is a much better defender. I mean, Judge can play center field, for goodness sakes. But pure hitter, Jordan Alvarez is on that list for me. And then last but not least, I am a sucker for the five-tool guy. And that's where Mookie Betts comes in. And I know Mookie Betts' batting average is not as high as you would like it to be this year, but the power is still there. He can run when he needs to run. He plays elite-level defense. And not only that, he plays elite-level defense at a variety of different positions. You need him to play the outfield, he's going to do that at a high level. You need him to play shortstop. He can play shortstop in a pinch. He can play second base in a pinch. I'm going to reward that. And again, think about this for a minute. And this should kind of speak to where baseball is at as far as the talent that you have throughout the game. Paul Goldschmidt is left off this list. Mike Trout, because of the way his body is broken down over the years, he's left off this list. Bryce Harper is left off this list. Steroids and no steroids. Fernando Tatis is not on this list. Bo Bichette and Vladdy Guerrero Jr. are not on this list. It's really hard to come up with a top five list of who you'd want to build your baseball team around. There are a lot of good choices. But for me, ranking them one through five, Otani one, Judge two, Ronald Acuna, three. Jordan Alvarez, four. Mookie Betts, five. I'm sure I have a laundry list of complaints, but I'm used to a laundry list of complaints. That's part for the course if you're living in New York City. Can't wait for Yankees and Dodgers this weekend. That is a get-your-popcorn-ready type of series. And one can only help as you look at the Yankees' odds at 12-1 to to win the World Series. The Dodgers' odds have dropped quite a bit with the good stretch of baseball they've had over the last couple weeks. Wouldn't mind an encore, maybe in October for the World Series. Long way to go before we get there. Enjoy the baseball this weekend. John Jastrzemski for New York, New York, signing off. It's the local angle on FanDuel TV.